everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And as always, I'm joined in the studio by my brother and producer, Joel. In today's episode, we are going to be diving into probably one of the most evil and monstrous humans to ever have walked this earth, and that is Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. It's been a minute since we've covered a serial killer, I realize. We were just counting how many episodes it's been since we covered Jeffrey Dahmer, so it's been a while, but definitely time to cover another serial killer. But before we get into Richard Ramirez, I first wanted to let everybody know that we are currently still in the process of getting merch available for you guys. It's been taking a little bit longer than I expected because I'm actually doing a complete rework of my merch store uh, because the merch store is actually shared with another podcast that I do called Mile Higher Podcast, which is a conspiracy and true crime show. And so the shop actually shares both of those. But we're almost done reworking the feel and look of the shop and hopefully we will have that Lights Out merch available for you guys very, very soon. And not only that, if you have never checked out the Malhar podcast before and you're interested in true crime or conspiracy or just other unsolved mysteries, then definitely check it out because it's a great show and it's definitely you know some more content for you to take a look at. Also, I wanted to remind everybody that if you want to support the show, one way you can do that for free is to go to Spotify and hit follow and then go to iTunes and click subscribe for Lights Out Podcast. And we'll put the links below for you but this does really help us out. And I know a lot of you are only watching the show on YouTube. So if you are, thank you. We really appreciate it. And make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. But also, if you wouldn't mind, you know, rolling over to iTunes and Spotify when you get a sec, that would be awesome. It does really help us out. And lastly, I want to thank our sponsors for today, Every Plate and Thrive Market for supporting the show. We really do appreciate it. But let's go ahead and get into Ricardo Ramirez. Now, with any serial killer, I always find it extremely interesting to go back and take a look at their life and see how their life began and, you know, try to figure out how does somebody go from, you know, being a baby, being born, where I truly don't believe anybody's born evil. So how does that progression work? You know, how does somebody go from being an innocent child to becoming an absolute monster in their adulthood? And that's where going through their childhood and their background is really interesting because you really kind of start picking up some clues and hints and possible events uh, or even injuries that happen to them that might contribute to them becoming an absolute monster in real life. So the story of Richard Ramirez begins on Leap Day, February 29th in 1960. He was born in El Paso, Texas, and he lived there with his parents, Julian or Julian and Mercedes, and his four older siblings, Ruth, Robert, Joseph, and the oldest sibling, Ruben. Now, his father, Julian Ramirez, was born in Mexico, and his mother, Mercedes Munez, was born in Colorado, actually. And the couple actually met when they were 14 years old, and they ended up getting married when they were 19. So they were definitely a young love, and they definitely started their family very early. Now, Julian eventually became an American citizen and started working for the Santa Fe Railroad. Meanwhile, Mercedes worked at a boot factory. When he was younger, Julian worked as a police officer in Juarez, Mexico, And he was an angry, violent young man, which didn't change when he had a family. Now, Juarez, Mexico is a rough place. I actually went there probably when I was, geez, in middle school, I think I went down there. It was actually for a church mission trip. Funny, huh? And I remember going into Juarez for the first time and just thinking, wow, this is an absolutely 
crazy place. I mean, it's just totally different than anything I'd ever seen before, especially at a young age to go to a place like Juarez. And and I know it's changed since then. It's been a long time since I've been there. But when I went down there, there was just a lot of poverty. And I remember seeing what I believe to be cartel members literally standing on the side of the roads. They'd have like skeleton masks on and stuff. And I just remember looking out the window of the church van, literally shitting my pants, thinking like, what, what are these guys doing? Cause they were all masked up and you know, obviously in some places in Mexico, the, the police definitely are uh, a bit corrupt. So it was a definitely an uneasy feeling being in Juarez, Mexico, so much so that the church actually made a stay in like this compound that was completely locked up. And so I know from firsthand experience that, uh, living and working in Juarez, Mexico is definitely not easy. Unfortunately, Julian was not very nice to young Richard, and he oftentimes took out a lot of his anger and aggression on him. When Mercedes was pregnant with Richard, she almost miscarried more than once, and the pregnancy complications could have been due to the fumes she was exposed to at the factory that she worked. And some people even believe that these fumes that she was breathing in and in result affecting possibly the development of Richard uh, in the womb could have led to some of the issues that he had psychologically. At least twice in Richard's childhood, he suffered severe head trauma, which is definitely another important thing to note. When he was two years old, a dresser fell on his head and busted open his scalp. He ended up needing more than 30 stitches to close the wound. That's fucking crazy, man. Like This happens all the time, too, where dressers fall on young children. And that, that must have been a real serious injury if he had to get 30 stitches in his head. I know there's another story. Joel, I sent Joel to the ER for a couple stitches when we were young for uh, jumping on the bed. I've never even had stitches and stitches ain't any fun. Yeah. I remember you and I were just jumping on our parents' bed one night while they're watching the news. And uh, yeah, we things got a little rowdy, <laughs> a little rough for a little joy. Yeah, dude. And I ended up flying off stressed. the bed and yeah, I just hit my forehead on a sharp corner on the coffee table or, you know, a bedside table. And yeah, I ended up getting... I think like eight, eight stitches, something like that. It was a pretty big wound. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So I can't imagine getting 30 stitches, how, how bad that wound must have been. Uh, I guess pretty bad if a whole dresser falls on you. And then one day when he was five years old, Richard was playing on some swings and ended up getting knocked unconscious. Soon after this happened, he started suffering from frequent epileptic seizures that lasted throughout his childhood. And because of his epilepsy, he was removed as the quarterback of his school's football team. His grades got worse, and he started sniffing glue. When he was 10 years old, Richard had a habit of sleeping in a nearby cemetery in order to avoid his father's physical abuse. And that's also where he started smoking marijuana. Now think about that for a moment. Not only are you you having to escape your father's abuse by Going to the cemetery, I guess, that's a really odd choice of a place to escape to. But imagine smoking weed at the cemetery for the first time, and that's the first time you smoke weed. What a weird place to start smoking weed. I don't know. I just find that really weird that that's the place that he went to is the the fucking graveyard. Like, out of all the places, there's probably parks and other places out there, and he somehow thought cemetery is where I want to go and relax and smoke weed. It's definitely weird. By the time he was 12 years old, he had gotten closer to his cousin, Miguel Ramirez, or Mike. He ended up hanging out with Mike to get away from his dad, and the two of them often smoked weed together. Mike was actually a combat vet and a decorated Green Beret who had actually served in Vietnam. 
And while hanging out with his little cousin, Mike told Richard gruesome, disturbing stories about his time in war. He even had pictures of women he had murdered and raped. And in one picture, Mike held up a severed head of a woman. And he would show Richard these pictures and tell him all the gory details about how he raped and murdered this woman. Not only did Mike show Richard these pictures, but he also taught him how to attack and kill someone without making a sound. Now, this is pretty, pretty fucking serious. I mean, this he's a young kid at this point, 12, 13 years old, and he's seeing such graphic imagery of violence and is hearing these stories. And, you know, on top of all of the already head trauma he's had and possible psychological issues, to put all this together, it just seems like a, a perfect recipe for what's to come later on. But my God, I can't even imagine seeing shit like that at fucking 12, 13 years old. That must have been just absolutely insane and just damaging. Like, I, I, I wonder how many nightmares he had from that. It, it clearly definitely impacted him psychologically. In 1973, when Richard was 13 years old, he was with his cousin Mike and Mike's wife, Jesse. And the couple ended up getting in a terrible fight. And in the chaos of the argument, Mike ended up pulling out a 38 caliber revolver. And while Richard was there watching, he aimed the gun at Jesse and pulled the trigger, killing her point blank. Mike ended up being arrested and charged with Jesse's murder. And he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And instead of going to prison, he was found not guilty and spent four years at a mental hospital. That's crazy to think about. He literally murdered his wife in cold blood, spent four years at a mental hospital because he got to plead insanity. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. So already in Richard's short life, he's literally witnessed murder firsthand, saw somebody die right in front of him in a horrible way too. He's seen all these horrible pictures that Mike has shown him. So all this is obviously going to have a major effect on Richard. It's going to leave a lasting impression on him that he will never forget. And this really, I believe is probably the turning point in Richard's life where something triggered inside of him. That was like, you know, he, something about what he witnessed, I don't know, seemed inviting to him. Like there was something thrilling about it. I feel like, and you have to remember Richard had a terrible relationship with his own family. So you know, Mike was a huge influence for him, a big friend to him, was there for Richard. And if anything, I could see that Richard looked up to Mike heavily. More so, so than his father even. Right. So he, he figured like everything that Mike was showing him was right and was trying to show him, you know, things like that, you know? Yeah. And you got to remember too, like being a 12, 13 year old boy, you think violence is badass. You're like, that's fucking badass. Like, I know for me as a, as a young boy, I mm-hmm. definitely found, you know, not this level of violence. No, I was not yeah. exposed to this shit like this, but just, you know, you're, you're really into like fighting and guns and war and all of that. And you think that's like badass to be somebody like that, who's fighting and, and doing things like that. But this is just another level. I mean, this clearly impacted him to a point where he probably didn't even realize it. Like he, subconsciously it totally fucked him up this whole experience he went through once mike was actually incarcerated though richard became very quiet and withdrawn he rarely interacted with his family or other kids and after witnessing this violent murder of mike's girlfriend he was never the same 
A year after the shooting, he actually moved in with his sister Ruth and her husband Roberto. And that's when he started experimenting with other drugs in addition to marijuana. One of those drugs he started using was LSD. Now, doing LSD at that age is probably not the best thing either because LSD is going to definitely cause your mind to go to some uh, different places. And after everything he's seen, I can only imagine some of the probably bad trips he had on on LSD because, my God, that's, that's, that's that's an intense drug for sure. But not only that, Richard started attending Jehovah's Witness meetings, and that's where he learned about Satan. It's also when he started dabbling in Satanism. Because clearly, I mean, once he learned about Satan, he probably was very intrigued by who Satan is according to the Bible and was like, ah, I'm like that guy. You know, I want to be like that guy. I've, you know, already seen shit that would make that guy happy. So, you know, why not worship Satan? And to make matters worse, his sister's husband, Roberto, was a peeping Tom who would go out late at night in order to spy on his victims. And once Richard moved in with him and Ruth, he started taking Richard with him, teaching him how to move through the neighborhood undetected and the best access points for spying on people. It was at this point that Richard started having violent sexual fantasies about tying up, torturing, and raping women. He had seen real-life examples of brutal torture through pictures Mike had shown him, and this led him to become obsessed with carrying out his own acts of sexual violence. On top of all that, he enjoyed watching horror movies, listening to heavy metal music, and hunting with his family. And when no one wanted to come along with him hunting, Richard often went alone. And his favorite part about hunting was sneaking up on unsuspecting animals and stabbing them to death and then gutting them. This sounds sure familiar to me. Sounds a lot like Jeffrey Dahmer. That's what's just so crazy about serial killers is there's so many similarities between all of them. And one of those is definitely hunting animals, killing animals, mutilating them, gutting them. So it's no surprise that Richard did that as well. As a young teenager, Richard attended Jefferson High School and got a job at Holiday Inn and would use that access that they gave him at Holiday Inn in order to break into hotel rooms. He would actually sneak into the rooms when the occupants were out or while they were even sleeping, he'd sneak in and try to steal things. One day he walked into a room and found a woman alone and he decided at that moment that he was going to seize that opportunity and he tried to rape her. But the woman's husband returned and ended up stopping Richard and the man ended up severely beating him before the police were contacted. Richard was actually charged with the assault, but the couple left the state and didn't come back to testify. So the charges were dropped. This right there, man, he should have been incarcerated for this at the very least. I mean, he should have did some time for this particular thing, but it's just like the luck worked out in his favor and he was able to get away, get, you know, completely get off scot-free. Like that's, that's just crazy that serial killers end up getting so lucky. But after this experience, Richard got a glimpse into what it would feel like to live out his violent sexual fantasies. And he was more driven than ever to make them come true. So obviously he got fired from the job at the holiday Inn after that event, Jesus Christ, Richard ended up dropping out of high school without finishing the ninth grade. When he was around 15 years old, he went to Los Angeles to visit his brother, Reuben. Reuben was a petty thief and he ended up teaching his brother how to break into people's homes without being caught. 
What a great big brother he is. After his cousin Mike ended up getting released from the mental hospital in 1977, he started hanging out with Richard again. And they continued using drugs together, and Mike continued to preach violence to his young cousin. Later that year, Richard was arrested for marijuana possession, which was the first of many arrests for drug offenses and theft. And then as a young adult, he ended up leaving home and moved to California. And it was there that he continued to hone his skills by breaking into and burglarizing people's homes. He actually was arrested at one point in 1981 for auto theft as well as in 1984. And by this time, Richard was completely addicted to cocaine and he used the money he made from stealing to pay for his drug addiction. He also made money selling marijuana that he had bought in El Paso, where weed was much, much cheaper to buy. He also started using PCP or angel dust, which oftentimes make people extremely aggressive and even have psychotic episodes, which is exactly what it did to Richard. And during one of these episodes, he was hanging out with a woman who was also using, and he decided to tie her up to a chair and rape her multiple times, saying he felt a sadistic thrill at the power that he had over her. He never had a single consensual sexual relationship with a woman other than paying sex workers. Gradually, Richard stopped taking care of himself, especially his teeth. He rarely brushed, and his poor hygiene and drug use caused them to rot. And the decaying teeth had a terrible smell, which made his breath unbearable. I can only imagine how disgusting his breath must have smelled like. And the poor victims that had to fucking smell his breath for one and endure the things that he did to them is absolutely devastating. At this time in his life, Richard read more about Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, which if you haven't seen the episode on Anton LaVey, definitely check it out because he's definitely a, a very misunderstood person. And a lot of people take his teachings and the things that he said the wrong way and, you know, make it out to be something much more evil than it really is. But Richard Ramirez found Anton LaVey and his work very, very interesting and especially the satanic rituals. But he decided that he wasn't going to follow an organized religion and instead became a lone practitioner. So what most people do, uh, they go and do their own thing or create their own spin of Satanism. And actually, in a conversation with his sister Ruth, she asked him why he followed Satan. And he said, because Satan represents what I feel. I'm not like the other people. I'm different. I've got a trade. I'm a thief, Ruth, and a good one. I'm not going to any jail. I'm protected. Now, this is something that I find very interesting because it's clear to me that he definitely took satanism serious to some extent he really i think he really felt like he was a follower of satan and that satan was sort of his god his deity it was who he followed and who he looked up to and obviously felt like was the the thing or person protecting him and it makes me think he used satanism as a way to justify his actions and you know oh yeah all those things that he was doing to people you know, and I get that he do, he took some of that stuff from Anton LaVey, but you know, Anton LaVey was not you know a serial killer. No, he loved people, and you know, he I guess that was his own spinoff of everything. Was he he used that you know as a way to right you know, escape through that? Well, that's like the biggest misconception about Satanism is that you know the Church of Satan is not necessarily about devil worshiping. It's it's more of a symbol. They look at Satan as a symbol of 
anti-religion. It's not so much about following an evil deity and performing evil acts like most people think Satanism is all about. And obviously there's different branches of Satanism, like what Richard Ramirez did where they completely, you know, they start with the basics of what Anton LaVey talks about and then they go and take it one direction and that direction gets very dark and very violent very quickly. And it soon becomes about worshiping the devil and doing the devil's work. And that's exactly what Richard Ramirez did because the murders of Richard Ramirez spanned 14 months from the spring of 1984 to the summer of 1985 and took place throughout the state of California. And during this brief time, Richard killed at least 14 people and tried to kill at least five people. And he committed multiple assaults, rapes, and burglaries. Richard evaded the police partly because he didn't seem to have a preference for the age of his victims. He seemingly broke into houses at random and killed or raped whoever he found. Eventually, he started favoring murdering the men right away so he could torture and rape the women. In April of 1984, Richard lived in the basement of a hotel in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco when he met nine-year-old May Leung. On April 10th, he attacked May, beating and raping her, and then he stabbed her to death. After she was dead, he tied a rope around her and hung her body from a pipe in the hotel's basement. The police ended up finding DNA evidence at the scene, but at that time in history, they did not have the technology in order to identify Richard for many decades to come. In June of 1984, a little over a month after May's murder, Richard broke into the apartment of 79-year-old Jenny Vincow in Glassell Park in Los Angeles. That night, Jenny had to open the window in order to just let in the breeze so that, you know, get a little cool air in that summer heat. And she left the mesh screen in place. But while she was asleep, Richard ended up removing that screen, climbing through the window, And while Jenny was still in bed, he started stabbing her and he stabbed her multiple times and finally slit her throat. He then searched the entire house and stole anything that he thought could be of value before fleeing. Her body ended up being found on June 28, 1984 and the wound to her neck was so deep she had almost been decapitated. And while searching the crime scene, the police found evidence of forced entry and a single fingerprint on the window screen. This attack was only the beginning of a string of rapes and murders throughout the greater Los Angeles area. By the spring of the following year, Richard was planning his next home invasion in Rosemead, California at the home of 22-year-old Maria Hernandez and her roommate, 34-year-old Dale Okazaki. Richard executed his plan on March 17, 1985, waiting outside the house with a 22 caliber handgun. And again, you have to remember Richard watched his victims. He would literally stalk them in order to find the perfect time in order to attack. So when Marie arrived home and pulled into her garage, before she made it into the house, Richard shot her in the face. Maria threw her hands up instinctively, and the bullet hit her keys, which reduced the impact and ultimately saved her life. Maria's roommate, Dale, was inside the house when she heard the gunshot. But before she could react, Richard was in the house and she tried to hide behind the kitchen counter. Dale then peeked over the counter just enough for Richard to shoot her in the forehead and kill her. And then like a fucking coward that he is, Richard fled the scene. And he knew he needed an escape vehicle, so just a few miles away in Monterey Park, California, Richard saw a 30-year-old woman named Veronica Yu, a design student, sitting in her car. So he took advantage of that opportunity and moved quickly. He dragged her out of the car, 
shot her twice, and then jumped in the driver's seat and sped away. Veronica was rushed to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead as soon as she arrived. In about an hour, Richard had murdered two women and seriously injured another. But Maria survived and gave the police a description of her attacker. She described a 25 to 35-year-old man with curly hair and bulging eyes. She also got a good look at his teeth, and they were widely spaced, discolored, and rotting in his mouth. And she said that he was either white or a light-skinned Hispanic man. A police sketch artist actually created an image of the suspect that she described and released it to the public. And as more witnesses survived the attacks, the police continued to refine and release new sketches. Man, I feel like those sketches are a little bit off. It does not really look like Richard Ramirez. But that's all they had to go off of. They didn't have really any other information other than that brief physical description of uh, the suspect. But unfortunately, Richard Ramirez looked different to each witness. However, one consistent detail was his foul breath. And the survivors who were assaulted and raped by Richard all reported an indescribable, awful stench coming from his mouth. At that point, the media picked up the story and started reporting about it widely. And by this time, the killer, who was still unknown, was nicknamed the Valley Intruder and the Walk-In Killer. Between media reports and the release sketch, people started calling the police with tips on who the killer might be. And one of these tips would end up being a crucial piece of information in the investigation. Before we continue, I want to thank our sponsors for today. So many of us have busy lives, busy schedules, and oftentimes we do not have time to go to the store, gather the ingredients, come home, prepare, clean, cook, and put out a home-cooked meal for your family. But with every plate, they make this extremely simple and extremely affordable. Get meals you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door. Think of it this way. One meal is the same price as one cup of coffee. Every plate dinners are the cheaper alternative to takeout or delivery and recipes come together in about 30 minutes, which is definitely faster than the time it takes to go to the grocery store and prepare a meal from scratch. But best of all, it all comes right to your door. There's no even leaving your house and everything is pre-measured. So all you got to do is put it all together in order to make a great meal. So if you're interested in trying every plate, get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code LIGHTSOUT3. Again, get three weeks of EveryPlate meals for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and enter that code LIGHTSOUT3. A few weeks back, I actually became a Thrive Market member, and they're delivering organic and sustainable groceries right to my door. Not only have I gotten some great food from them, especially seafood, they've got awesome seafood, they've got awesome meats, all really, really good quality, but they also have all your other essentials, deodorant, laundry detergent, dish detergent, skincare products. I mean, they literally have everything. I can't imagine shopping for many of these things at any other place. Thrive Market's got the best quality products for a great price. And not only that, as a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products I love and my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need, like a low-income family, teacher, veteran, or first responder. I absolutely love this about Thrive Market. I think it's great that they're doing this, and it's all the more reason to join. So if you're interested in checking out Thrive Market, go to thrivemarket.com slash lights out. Join today, and you'll get a free gift of your choosing up to $22 in value. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash lights out to start your risk-free membership and get a free gift today. Thrivemarket.com slash lights out. All right, so back to Richard. So Richard is 
obviously seeing these sketches that are coming out by police. He's following the media coverage very, very closely. So he knows that the police are on to him and they're starting to track his whereabouts and slowly coming closer to him. Now, one thing about Richard is that he is actually a, a pretty smart guy for a guy that basically dropped out of school. He, his intelligence level is actually pretty high. And I feel like in order to be a serial killer, you do have to be somewhat of a smart individual in order to evade capture for so long. You can't make stupid mistakes. You got to be able to cover your tracks. You got to be able to be cunning and, you know, lie on the spot and deceive people. And Richard was all of those things. And one of the things that Richard would do is he would frequently switch out stolen cars between crimes. And he was also careful to thoroughly wipe down all surfaces in order to remove any fingerprints when leaving the scene. On March 27, 1985, Richard struck again. He went to a house in Whittier, California, owned by 64-year-old Vincent Zazara and his wife, 44-year-old Maxine Zazara. Richard had actually broken into the couple's home the year before, so he knew the entry points and the layout very well. And at 2 in the morning, Richard entered the couple's bedroom and shot Vincent in the head, killing him with the same 22 caliber handgun he had used to kill Dale and Veronica. This actually woke Maxine up, but when she did, Richard didn't shoot her. Instead, he tied her hands together, beat her, commanding her to tell him where she kept the money, jewelry, and other valuables. And while Richard searched the room, Maxine was able to loosen the ties around her hands. And then she pulled a shotgun that was underneath the bed and tried to aim it at Richard, but unfortunately, it wasn't loaded. Which If you're going to keep a shotgun under your bed, why the hell would you not have that thing loaded and ready to go for this exact type of situation? And even when she pulled the shotgun, this did not intimidate Richard. It only just pissed him off more. And after that, he ended up shooting her three times. But the gunshots weren't enough. He then went to the kitchen, found a large knife, and started stabbing Maxine until the point where she was nearly dead. And then after she died, he continued stabbing her some more. And then he did something absolutely heinous. He slid that knife into her eye sockets and gouged out, scooped them out, both of her eyes, placing them inside of Maxine's jewelry box. Richard then took that box with him when he fled. It's fucking horrible. Oh my God. And this is something that serial killers will oftentimes do. They'll, they'll want to take something from their victims with them so that they can be reminded of you know, what they did. It's like a trophy to them. Vincent and Maxine's bodies ended up being found by their son, Peter, who obviously immediately called the authorities. And I can't even imagine walking into that scene, seeing your parents in that state, especially your mother. Oh my God, that must have been absolutely just horrifying. And unfortunately, the only evidence found at the scene were footprints in the flower bed made by a pair of men's size 11 and a half Avia sneakers. The police took pictures of the footprint and made a cast of it. The police also matched the bullets to those from the previous two murders and attempted murder. And at that point, they started putting the pieces together and like, hey, we are dealing with a serial killer who could strike again at any time, which is crazy because for a while, they did not think it was a serial killer. They, it's like back in the day when serial killers were running wild, like there, a lot of times they would not believe or want to especially come out and tell the public that, you know, there was a serial killer on the loose. And for a while they had no idea that Richard was a serial killer. 
Later that spring on May 14, 1985, Richard chose his next target, the home of 66-year-old Bill Doy and his 56-year-old wife Lillian in Monterey Park. Lillian was actually disabled, and because of that, the couple had separate bedrooms. And when Richard arrived to the home and went inside, he went into Bill's bedroom first. Bill immediately lunged for his handgun, but Richard ended up shooting him in the face before he could use it. However, the gunshot didn't kill him, so Richard beat Bill until he lost consciousness. And this is what's so different, I guess, about Richard Ramirez is that most serial killers don't go the gun route. Like this is this is not that common that serial killers are just running around shooting people. They're oftentimes stabbing, strangulation, you know, a much more personal method of killing, but not Richard Ramirez. Richard then proceeded to Lillian's bedroom where he restrained her with thumb cuffs, which locked her thumbs together in the same way handcuffs lock wrists together. He then searched the room for money, jewelry, and anything else of value until he went back. And after he had gotten what he wanted, he then went back into Lillian's bedroom and raped her. And when Richard left, actually, Bill was still alive, but he later died of his injuries at the hospital. In that same month, Richard stole a car and drove to Monrovia, California. And on May 29, 1985, he targeted his next victims. 83-year-old Ma Bell took care of her disabled sister, 81-year-old Nettie Lang. And the two women lived together in a house in Monrovia. Richard broke in while Ma and Nettie were in separate bedrooms. And he looked around the kitchen and found a hammer. He then headed into Nettie's room first where he hit her with a hammer and tied her up. And then he did the same to Ma. Richard then tortured the women by shocking them with an electrical cord and raping the disabled sister Nettie. In Ma's room, Richard found a lipstick tube and used it to draw a pentagram on Nettie's thigh and on the bedroom walls. The women then laid unconscious for two days before someone found them. Nettie ended up surviving the attack, but Ma later died. That's so horrifying, man. Can't even imagine that. These poor women. The very next day on May 30th, Richard drove the stolen vehicle to Burbank, California and attacked 42-year-old Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son in their home. He put Carol and her son in handcuffs and demanded to know where any of the cash or valuables were in the house. And in order to do so, he uncuffed Carol in order to show him where those were at and he shoved her son into a closet. Then he raped her multiple times and during the attack, he told her over and over not to look at him or else he'd cut her eyes out. And before he left to just terrorize him a little bit more, he pulled Carol's son out of the closet, which he probably was fucking mortified at that point, and then used the handcuffs in order to cuff him and his mother together. Can't even imagine how traumatizing that must have been for their that poor boy. A little over a month later, Richard was driving a different stolen car in Arcadia, California. And on July 2nd, 1985, he pulled up outside the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. Richard didn't know who lived in the house. He just chose it at random. Mary Louise happened to be a grandmother and a widow, and she lived in the house alone. She actually was sleeping in her bed when Richard broke in. And using a lamp, he beat Mary Louise until she was unconscious. Then he stabbed and killed her with her own 10-inch kitchen knife. 
just brutal, man. And there's just no rhyme or reason to it. As far as we know, he just literally chose this by random. I can't believe he just got so like lucky in the sense every time he happened to get an elderly person that was home alone and it just like worked out seemingly every time he attacked somebody. And a few days later on July 5th, Richard chose a house in Sierra Madre for his next attack. He crept into the bedroom of 16 year old Whitney Bennett and beat her in the head with a tire iron. And as he had done in previous attacks, he then went to the kitchen to find a knife to finish the job, but couldn't find one. Frustrated, he went back into Whitney's room and tried to use a phone cord to strangle her to death. And during the struggle, he saw electrical sparks coming from the cord. And this surprised him enough that he stopped strangling Whitney. And when she took a breath, Richard panicked and ran. He, for some reason, thought this spark from the cord was some type of divine intervention and that Jesus Christ had revived her. Unfortunately for Whitney, though, she needed 478 stitches in her scalp, but she survived the attack. Two days later, on July 7, 1985, Richard broke into two houses in Monterey Park. When he broke into the first house, he found 61-year-old Joyce Nelson asleep on her couch in the living room. And I think it's important to remember that he must be watching them for a period of time. I can't imagine he just rolled up on these houses and goes right in. I mean, he clearly had to stake it out before going in. He had to have known that these victims are sleeping when he's going into their house. Unfortunately for Joyce Nelson, though, Richard savagely beat her with his bare hands and kicked her repeatedly in the head until she died. Richard then drove around looking for another house to break into. And he went through a few more neighborhoods before coming back to Monterey Park. He then chose the home of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. And once inside, he restrained Sophie with handcuffs, beat her, and tried to rape her. Afterward, he searched the house for cash and valuables and ended up finding some of her jewelry. Richard then went to Sophie and demanded that he know where the rest was hidden. And made her swear to Satan that he had found all of it. When the police examined Joyce's body from the first crime scene, they found an imprint of a men's size 11 and a half Avia sneaker on her face. The imprint matched the cast that they had taken from the flower bed in March. A few weeks went by and Richard began to fantasize about more violent, bloody murders. Because at this point, I think he's just fueled by the rage and the adrenaline and just the rush that he gets. He's clearly getting off by just murdering people at this point. Plus, I feel like he thinks he's invincible because he's getting away with so much of this and no one's even, you know, have an idea that he's the one doing it. No one's tracking him down, nothing like that. So he feels like he can do this whenever and wherever he wants. It's just crazy that the police haven't gotten on to him yet. Like there's nobody patrolling these neighborhoods where he's just running around in stolen vehicles. Like where are the police patrols at, man? Like, God, it's just crazy that this was allowed to happen. Like he was able to pull this off and just go from house to house to house and brutally murder people and be lucky enough that they're all asleep, that they don't, you know, really put up a fight or they don't scream. Like that's what I keep thinking is like when you're savagely beating somebody to death, aren't people hearing screams and loud noises and like how he's, it's like he's this trained assassin who's trained in the art of like, 
kill, I, I guess in a way he kind of is because of fucking uncle Mike or whatever. Like Mike must have shown him some stuff about sneaking around and to the point where it, this shit actually works. Like he knew some stuff to, that would allow him to evade being noticed by anybody. Cause I just can't imagine somebody doing this and nobody hearing anything, nobody seeing anything like any, and not only that in the same area, like he goes away, but then he comes back to the exact same area where he had just committed a previous murder. It's just wild to me that he was able to, to run around like this. It's just insane. And his stealth ability was literally like on X games mode. I mean, just the fact he was able to sneak around without anyone catching him or waking up or anything, because out of all these stories we've covered so far, not one person even had the opportunity to call for the police. You know, they, they just got attacked in their sleep. Seriously though, he's, it's like he's a ninja or something like it's just wild to think that he's able to, to do this without any buddy noticing him. I just, it's, it's really hard to believe on July 20th, 1985, he decided that the weapon that he needed was a machete. So he bought one and then drove down to Glendale, California in a stolen vehicle. And while 66 year old Layla needing and her husband Maxon slept in their bed, Richard broke into their home and snuck quietly through their halls all the while holding a machete. He ended up entering the couple's room and before they even had a chance to react, Richard started hacking away at them. Layla and Maxon ended up being covered in deep wounds from the machete and he finished them both off with a gunshot to the head. Now just thinking about what that scene looks like is just terrifying. And there actually is crime scene photos of it out there and they're absolutely horrifying. There's blood all over the walls. It's just an absolute mess. Just, he's just doing it for fun at this point. This is just a, you know, a game. It's just an absolute game for him. It's a thrill and there, there's just no rhyme or reason to it. And and he's clearly picking out his victims to some extent because he's going after older people that are probably going to have a less likely chance of fighting back against him or putting, you know, struggling or taking him over. So, and he probably just feels more confident killing older people. And it seems like it's just not about killing somebody because obviously he wants to inflict as much pain as possible. I mean, Dear God, he's bringing a fucking machete in and, you know, chopping these guys up before, you know, lays them to rest with a bullet to the head. You know, if he was just looking to kill somebody, I mean, I would think he would just shoot them to begin with. But clearly he's he's out there to torture these people. And uh, I, I just don't really understand the true intention behind that. I think it's just he f- he feeds off of it, you, you know, off of the, the pain and the anguish and the fear you know the infect he he wants to be the devil i mean he worships satan and you look at everything that satan is he wants to be satan he wants to be the devil he wants people to fear him and he knows that by you know going from shooting people to hacking people up that you know that only increases that sort of passion that he has for killing because he wouldn't stop hacking at the bodies even when they were dead, he would continue hacking away at them and pretty much mutilating them even after they had passed. 
After he had completely destroyed the bodies, he would then search the house and steal anything valuable he could find before fleeing. He then jumped into a stolen car and then drove to Sun Valley to find his next victim. And then around 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of Chanarong Kovananath, where he lived with his wife, Samkid, and their eight-year-old son. Richard moved quickly to Chanarong and Samkid's bedroom and shot the man once in the head in order to kill him. And during the attack, he ended up raping some kid multiple times and tied up the couple's son. Then he pulled some kid up off the ground and dragged her around the house looking for cash and jewelry. And just as he had done with his previous victim, he made her swear to Satan that he had found it all. By this time, it's August of 1985 and residents across the state of California had heard multiple reports of a dangerous killer on the loose who would just break into houses randomly and murder anyone he found inside. And during this time, the state saw record sales for guns, window bars, and heavy-duty locks, as well as security systems. Everybody was on high alert because you just did not know. Literally, the entire state of California was living in fear because they had no idea who this guy was. They had no idea where he was going to strike next, and he had seemingly no plan. Like He just attacked people at random, so literally everybody was terrified. They were worried that they would, you know, one night just wake up dead. I guess you don't wake up. You just are dead. Like in your sleep, you don't wake up at all. That's terrifying. I mean, imagine if that happened today. I think we'd all be sleeping with a a gun under our pillow or in our hand cross our chest. I know I would be, I would be, I probably wouldn't sleep at all. You know, like that's, that's just terrifying. Richard Ramirez is running around murdering people at will moving seemingly like a ghost through California and the police still have no idea who this guy is. And in an effort to try and curb the public's fear, local police departments put up to 10 times more officers on the streets and urge people to be careful and to lock their doors. Cause yeah, in the eighties, like people were still leaving their doors unlocked at night. They were leaving their windows unlocked. You know, if you had a ground level window, you, you know, they would leave it open and somebody could easily just pull the screen off and hop inside or just go right in through the front door. Cause people, you know, people back in the day, it's crazy to think about, especially in times like we're living in now, people had way more trust in, you know, their neighbors and just society in general. And they felt safe most of the time. So just think about how much more amplified that fear was when they found out that literally the devil was running around murdering people in their sleep. Uh, the fear was real. That's for sure. The FBI was even tasked with creating a special task force with the sole purpose of finding this killer and bringing him to justice. Detectives disagreed about how many perpetrators they were looking for. Some believe that the crimes were so varied and frequent that there had to be more than one killer. A few weeks after the Kovanoff family attack, Richard broke into a house in Northridge, California on August 6th. And this house was owned by 27-year-old Virginia Peterson and her husband, Chris. And when he entered the couple's bedroom, Virginia screamed before Richard shot her in the face. He then proceeded to shoot Chris in the neck. But Chris didn't stay down. He attacked Richard. And while the men fought, the gun went off twice. But neither of them was hit. But somehow, in this struggle and chaos, Richard broke free and was able to run out of the house. Chris and Virginia, however, were rushed to the hospital shortly after 
and thankfully both of them survived. And then two days later, Richard got another stolen car, which he would just go grab people's cars, break into it, carjack them, whatever he needed to do. And he started driving through Diamond Bar, California. It was August 8th, 1985, when he spotted the home of 31-year-old Elias Abawath and 27-year-old Sakina Abawath. The couple had a three-year-old son as well, and the family was sound asleep when Richard broke in around 2.30 a.m. He then went to the couple's bedroom and shot Elias before either could react. Elias died instantly. A gruesome night of cruel tortures then followed. Richard started beating and handcuffing Sakina and then violently raping her. Their three-year-old son heard the noise and came into the bedroom to see what was going on. At that point, Richard grabbed him, tied him up, and went back to raping Sakina. And during the attack, he made her swear to Satan that she wouldn't scream. Richard then dragged Sakina around the house, demanding to know where the valuables were kept before he fled. Obviously, after this attack, Sakina was severely injured, but she was able to untie her son, who then ran to the neighbor's house to get help for his mother. After this attack of the Abawath family, Richard left Los Angeles and headed back to the San Francisco area. And because Richard followed the media closely, he knew the Los Angeles police were making progress on their investigation. So he thought San Francisco might be a safer place to continue his crimes. He then targeted the home of 62-year-old Barbara Pan and her husband, 66-year-old Peter. He broke into their house on August 18, 1985, and as he always did, headed right to their bedroom where he shot Peter in the temple point-blank and killed him. He then grabbed Barbara and savagely beat and raped her, and when he was finished, he shot her in the head. And as he had done before, Richard found a lipstick tube and drew a pentagram on the bedroom wall, adding the phrase, Jack the Knife. When investigators searched the scene, they found ballistics evidence and a shoe print that linked this crime to the murderer on the loose in Los Angeles. The mayor of San Francisco at the time, Diane Feinstein, held a press conference to inform the public and revealed this crucial evidence. When detectives in Los Angeles found out about this press conference, they were furious. They knew this was likely going to jeopardize the case, and they were right. Media across the state reported the case's new details, which gave the killer a new nickname, the Night Stalker. Richard, of course, saw the media reports about this key forensic evidence, and that same night, he went to the Golden Gate Bridge and threw his avia sneakers over the side because he knew that was the only piece of evidence they could tie back to him was those sneakers and once they showed him on tv he got rid of them and at this point he was loving the media because the media were literally giving him a heads up and telling him exactly what evidence they had against him and he also liked the nickname they had given him too because he even started calling himself the night stalker And throughout the investigation, the police continued to receive tips from the public. After watching a media report, a man who owned a hotel in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco recognized the accused murder's description. Richard had actually lived in a hotel periodically for about a year and a half. The man called the tip into the police, and it was added to their growing list of possible leads. A few days after the press conference, Richard drove back to Los Angeles, but he didn't stay long. He then stole an orange Toyota and headed to Mission Viejo, about 76 miles south of L.A. On the night of August 24, 1985, the Romero family had just gotten back from a trip to Mexico. James Romero Jr. and his wife were sleeping in their bedroom. 
Their 13-year-old son, James Romero III, was still awake when he heard a noise outside that sounded like footsteps. He then rushed into his parents' room, woke them up, and then ran back to the door to find the burglar. Richard heard the commotion and then ran back to the car and was able to get in it and drive away, just as James stepped outside. James told his father he saw an orange car and could identify the make and model. He even saw part of the license plate number, so they called the police to report what had happened and gave them the description of the car. When investigators arrived, they thoroughly searched the property and found a footprint outside the house, and they ended up taking pictures and they made a cast of the footprint. After failing to break into this one house, Richard drove to the home of 30-year-old Bill Carnes. Him and his fiance, 29-year-old Inez Erickson, were asleep when Richard snuck into their bedroom and cocked his gun. And when he did this, the noise woke Bill up. Richard immediately proceeded to shoot him in the head three times. He then grabbed Inez and started beating her. And during the attack, he told her he was the night stalker, and he made her swear she loved Satan. Richard then found neckties in the closet and used them to tie Inez's wrists. As he had done before, he then searched the house for money and valuables. He then dragged Inez out of the bedroom and raped her before dragging her around the house looking for more money and jewelry. And again, he made her swear to Satan that he had found it all. Once he was satisfied with his search, he then told Inez, tell them the Night Stalker was here. And then he vanished. Inez frantically removed the neckties and rushed to her neighbor's house. Bill was rushed to emergency surgery to remove three bolts from his head, and miraculously, he survived. But one of the bolts couldn't be removed. Unfortunately, the injuries he sustained from the gunshot wounds left Bill cognitively impaired, and he had to move into a group home. Fortunately, Inez, though, was present enough during her attack to give a detailed description of the attacker to police, which included his chilling request to be called the Night Stalker. A few days later, on August 28th, the stolen orange Toyota that Richard was driving was found in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles. After a thorough search, the police finally caught a break. A single fingerprint was found on the rearview mirror. Perhaps Richard had been thrown off by being caught at the Romero's family's home and got sloppy for a second. But finding out who the print belonged to proved to be more complicated than it seemed. The Los Angeles Police Department at the time had a newly developed computerized fingerprint database. To get a match within the system, they needed to run it against a name. And the only people they had in the system were those born after January 1960. The police went back through the tips they had been receiving from the public, and they found the name Ramirez from the hotel owner in San Francisco. This was a very common name in California, and they knew they were limited to those born after January 1960. Investigators didn't have much hope, but they ran the print through the system against anyone with the name Ramirez. And guess what? They caught another break. The system positively identified a 25-year-old drifter named Richard Ramirez, born just one month after the cutoff date in February 1960. Man, what luck is that? And after they got this match, investigators wasted no time. They released a mugshot from a previous arrest in December 1984 to the media and immediately scheduled a press conference. And at this press conference, the investigator spoke directly to Richard, saying, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. And then a short two days later, on August 30th, Richard got on a bus headed for Tucson, Arizona, where his brother lived. 
At this point, he had no idea that every major newspaper and TV station in California was reporting on the case and showing the release mugshot. Richard never met up with his brother. Instead, he took another bus back to Los Angeles and arrived at the Greyhound station early in the morning the next day. On August 31st, 1985, Richard casually strolled into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. Several police officers were nearby watching the outbound buses at the station in case the wanted killer tried to flee the state. Inside the store, newspapers were being sold with Richard's picture prominently featured on the front page. But Richard walked right past the newspapers without noticing the large image of his face printed in black and white. What he did notice, though, was a group of older Mexican women outside the store's window, and they happened to be talking to a police officer and pointing toward him. And the women seemed scared, and they kept saying, El Matador, meaning the killer. Richard could tell by the way that the women looked at him that he was in trouble, and that's when he looked down at the stack of newspapers and finally saw his own face staring back at him. Obviously, at this point, he panicked and then ran out of the convenience store into the street, unaware that there were multiple police officers outside. The police were very quick to move in. Richard was pursued on foot by several officers, seven police cars, and a helicopter, and the police continued to track him as he maneuvered through the streets and down alleys, evading them every step of the way. He just took the fuck off. He just started running. He ran across the Santa Ana freeway. And when he made it across, he tried to pull a woman from her car for a quicker getaway. Some men nearby saw him trying to attack the woman and ran after him. Richard fled, but the men kept chasing him. He tried to steal another car, an unlocked Mustang, but a man named Faustino Pinion pulled him out of the car. Then Richard ran across the street and threatened a woman named Angelina De La Torre to try to get her car keys away from her. Her husband, Manuel, picked up a metal pipe and beat Richard over the head with it splitting his head wide open. At this point, he's exhausted. He's running. He's got blood streaming down his face. Richard runs down another residential street and more people in the neighborhood started joining in on the chase. At this point, dozens of people are running after him and Richard is completely exhausted. Soon after the crowd caught up to him and just started beating Richard, they punched him and kicked his stomach back and head, just literally beating the shit out of him. And clearly they knew this was the guy. This was the killer that was terrorizing the state of California and it was their time for payback and the crowd attacked him mercilessly and the crowd just went at it and nearly killed Richard. If it hadn't been for the police showing up when Richard actually saw the police, he yelled from the ground. It's me and was literally begging for the police to save him from the mob that was beating him to death. At that point, the police were able to disperse the crowd but the beating was very severe. And actually, while the police arrested Richard, he actually thanked them. Once safely in the backseat of the police car, Richard then said, I'm going to be blamed for all the murders. And when they pulled up to the police station and let Richard out, he threw up on the ground and his vomit was bright green. One officer remembered it as it was green like the exorcist. This guy is really evil. Wonder why it was green. What do you have a fucking salad that day? (laughs) That's disgusting, man. At that point, the officer tightened Richard's handcuffs and later said, I didn't know what he was capable of. I looked straight into the eye of absolute evil. He had cold black eyes. He was the ultimate manifestation of absolute evil. One of the detectives who initially interviewed Richard watched him draw pentagrams on the table with his finger. 
The detective described Richard as the most vicious and vile person he had ever come in contact with. And then in a later interview, years later, Richard's response to being called evil was simply, we are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? And also in this same interview, he actually claims to be innocent of the crimes he's suspected of. And we'll go ahead and play a short clip of Richard Ramirez just because you got to hear the shit that comes out of his mouth. That's crazy. You have now entered a very rare group of people in this country. You're in the, the ranks of Charlie Manson, Ted Bundy. You claim you didn't commit these murders, but you're right in there now as far as everybody else is concerned. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. Even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough, but then again, maybe they don't. Do you have emotions, Richard? No comment. Tell me what kind of emotions you got going through you right now. I'll tell you what, I gave up on love and happiness a long time ago. Why? I, I don't care to explain that. Let, let, the, let the quote stand for itself. People, people in this day and age are brainwashed and programmed like a computer at being nothing more than puppets. This nation, this country is founded in violence. Violent delights tend to have violent ends. It's, madness is something rare in individuals, but in groups, people, and ages, it is a rule. Killing is killing, whether done for duty, profit, or fun. Men murdered themselves into this democracy. As you can tell from that clip, not only does he say he's innocent of the crimes, which initially he said he did do the crimes, and then he switched and said he didn't do the crimes, but he's also trying to blame what he did on the fact that the government does far worse things, he says. But the whole time, you can absolutely tell that he has no feeling of remorse whatsoever. There's no emotion there. There's no no signs of guilt. You know, He's not sorry for what he did. And he truly, I believe, thinks that he is smarter than everybody. And when that interviewer said, you know, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, I feel like he was proud to be named among those people, which is a sick. Clearly, he's a sick man. But the night that Richard was finally caught, residents of nearby neighborhoods where he was arrested danced and partied in the streets. I mean, they were extremely happy that this maniac had been taken off the street and was going to face severe punishment for what he had done. Because on August 31st, 1985, Richard was arrested and charged with 14 burglaries, 11 sexual assaults, five attempted murders, and 13 counts of murder. However, he pled innocent on all counts on September 10, 1985, and a jury selection for the trial didn't begin until July 22, 1988. So it took almost three years for them to even begin the trial. And this long delay between his arrest and the trial was partly caused by disagreements between the defense attorney and the prosecution. To speed up the process, some of the charges against Richard were dropped to eliminate issues with jurisdictions. And then on October 9, 1985, Richard fired his public defenders and hired a private attorney named Joseph Gallegos to represent him in court. And this new attorney that he had just hired was soon fired and replaced by two attorneys from San Jose. 
Joseph actually died of a heart attack in January of 1986, three years before the trial began. After he was fired by Richard, Joseph told reporters, What I'm interested in is the proper administration of justice. Far be it for me to stand in the way. Richard Ramirez's trial finally began in January of 1989. During the trial, Richard never gave any indication that he regretted his actions, and at his first appearance he yelled, Hail Satan! while holding up his left hand that had a pentagram drawn on the palm. He would also often wear black clothing and even dark sunglasses to court. Fellow Satanists who had come to the trial also wore all black. Richard gave them the two-finger devil sign, and while he was being escorted out of the courtroom, he said one word to them. Evil. In early August, workers at the jail where Richard was held during the trial told the Los Angeles Times that Richard had a plan to smuggle a gun into court to kill the prosecutor. On August 14th, the trial was brought to an abrupt halt when juror Phyllis Singletary never showed up. Phyllis had been murdered. She was shot to death in her apartment by her boyfriend. Afterward, he used the same gun to kill himself in a nearby hotel room. Even though the police determined that Phyllis's murder wasn't related to the trial, the other jurors believed Richard was responsible. And the juror who should have replaced Phyllis refused to serve because, I mean, God, If one of the jurors shows up dead, you probably thought, man, that could be me next. They even installed a metal detector as a safety precaution to the courtroom entrance so that they could continue the trial. Richard's father, Julian, testified that his son had been in El Paso, Texas for his niece's first communion in May of 1985 when two of the crimes took place. A family photo was admitted into evidence that was taken on May 25th, 1985. However, the prosecution admitted dental records as evidence that Richard was back in Los Angeles on May 30th, 1985, which was the same day Carol Kyle was raped in her home. Throughout the trial, Richard attracted fans who wrote him letters in prison and even visited him, including many women admirers and fellow Satan worshipers. That's the most bizarre phenomenon to me is these women that find serial killers to be the most amazing, attractive thing. And one particular woman found Richard Ramirez especially attractive. And that woman was named Doreen Lyway. And she started writing letters to Richard soon after his arrest in 1985. She happened to be a journalist who lived on a houseboat. And she believed Richard was innocent. And she ended up writing him over 75 letters and visited him whenever she could. Man, I feel like you need a lot of evidence to fucking just say he's innocent other than just believing what he's saying. You know, what's coming out of his mouth. But what's absolutely insane to me is that in 1988, Richard asked Doreen to marry him and she said yes. And the couple became engaged soon after though, on September 20th, 1989, Richard was convicted of all charges by a unanimous jury. And at his sentencing hearing on November 7th, Richard read a statement to the court in a loud, angry voice. He said, you don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us. I don't believe in the hypocritical, moralistic dogma of this so-called civil society. You maggots make me sick. Hypocrites one and all, I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night. Night breed. 
Repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. Just shows his state of mind, that statement right there. Truly believes he's this evil devil. It's pretty much how you sum it up. And obviously none of this helped his case because he was sentenced to 19 death sentences to be executed by asphyxiation in the California gas chamber at only 29 years old. After being sentenced to death, Richard smiled. And then he turned to the jury and yelled, I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in us all. That's it. And then he went on to say, Hey, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. What the f- <laughs> See you in Disneyland? I know Disneyland is it's kind of hell, but it's not quite the hell where you'd expect to find Richard Ramirez to hang out at. It just shows it was all a game to him the whole time. And yeah, he just doesn't give a fuck about any, anybody but himself, basically. No, and he knew he was going to get caught. He knew he was going to just have his you know fun and carnage while he could and that it would all come to an end. And I, I think he knew death was at the end of that road for sure. But I think it was about fame too. I think he wanted that fame. He wanted that, you know, to become this infamous figure and be regarded as one of the most, you know, horrific serial killers of all time. I think that was really one of his his motivations for doing all this for sure. And at this particular time, Richard Ramirez's trial was actually the most expensive in California history. It costed one point eight million or over three point eight million in twenty twenty dollars. Crazy enough. Richard married his lovely fiance, 41-year-old Doreen Lyway, in a ceremony at San Quentin. <laughs> if you've ever seen any of those locked-up shows, can't imagine how romantic San Quentin must have been. That place is fucking scary, man. But they got married on October 3rd, 1996, and before they got married, Doreen bought herself a gold wedding band, but she chose a platinum band for Richard because Satanists don't wear gold. And for a time, Doreen was so devoted to Richard that she swore she would kill herself when he was put to death. And in an interview with CNN, Doreen said, He's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I think he's a really great person. He's my best friend. He's my buddy. (laughs) you fucking kidding me? What's wrong with you? Seriously. I just don't understand this fucking weird thing where women like want to be married or in relationships with clear cut killers, especially serial killers who literally raped, beat, murdered, bludgeoned, tortured human beings. Why would you think that that person is a really great person? Come on. There was so much evidence, so much physical evidence to suggest that he was the killer and you're just going to take his word for it. How dumb are you? Seriously. But obviously when Doreen, you know, everything unfolded and probably all the backlash, I'm sure she got death threats. I'm sure it was horrible. Once people found out that she was Richard Ramirez's wife, she eventually did leave Richard all the while though. Richard continued to appeal his convictions and sentence, but because the case included 50,000 pages of court records, this process took years. 
His first round of state appeals was denied on August 7, 2006, and one month later, his request for a rehearing made it all the way to the California Supreme Court and was denied on September 7, 2006. The judge who upheld his sentence said that Richard showed cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding. And then decades after he was sentenced to die by execution, the police were finally able to connect the murder of nine-year-old May Leung to Richard Ramirez. DNA evidence found at the crime scene ended up being matched back to him in 2009. Prison wasn't all that bad for Richard, though. While he was incarcerated, his decaying teeth were replaced at the expense of California taxpayers. Wow. I'm sure California taxpayers were thrilled when they found out that they paid for uh, serial killer's mouth to be fixed when he's going to fucking die anyway. What's the point of that? That seems pointless to me. Maybe they were like, we're getting too many complaints in San Quentin from his, this dude's bad breath. <laughs> yeah. We can't put him with any cellmates because or he can't be anywhere near anybody because his <laughs> fucking breath is it's killing people slowly. So fucking <laughs> bad. That's yeah, like poison. But during his time in prison, Richard continued receiving letters from so-called fans and people were fascinated by him and wanted to learn more about a killer's mind. One of his admirers was a former juror who convicted him. That's fucking crazy. What's wrong with you? And sometimes these women would even come to the prison to visit Richard and would actually fight each other, get in physical fights in order to win Richard's affection. Occasionally, he included drawings with the letters of things like Winnie the Pooh and Sailor Moon manga characters, or he swapped pictures with his pen pals. Once he formed a connection, he started signing the letters, your friend, and sometimes included a drawing of a heart. Who the fuck is dumb enough to, to believe this guy? Seriously, he's a master manipulator. Some of the people who wrote to him believe he never really worshipped Satan and exaggerated his beliefs for attention from the media. And by 2013, he got engaged to one of his admirers, a 23-year-old writer. And even though he spent 23 hours a day in a cell and wasn't allowed to go outside in the yard, he still wasn't the most well-behaved inmate. Once Richard was brought to the psychiatric ward and lunged at an orderly, the orderly had to tackle him to the ground and tranquilize him. He also liked to pull down his pants and wave his genitals at guards passing by a cell. In an interview from Death Row, Richard said, There are desires where if I didn't give in to them, I would be crushed by them. I believe in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked world, and in a wicked world, wicked people are born. But by this time in his life, Richard was definitely not a healthy man. He was diagnosed with B-cell lymphoma, a type of blood cancer, and his health had deteriorated from chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. And when he was 53 years old, Richard was taken from prison to Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California in June of 2013. And after being on death row for more than 23 years, Richard died in the hospital on June 7, 2013. His cause of death was complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma. Based on the California's appeals process, it's likely that Richard wouldn't have been put to death until he was in his early 70s. Richard never stopped trying to appeal his convictions and death sentence, and at the time of his death, he still had appeals pending. It wasn't until 2016, three years after his death, that the police released new evidence in the murder of May Leung, connecting a second person to the crime. Investigators believe a juvenile suspect was at the crime scene, but they don't have enough evidence to make an arrest. Richard never admitted to the crimes he was convicted of, and he never showed any remorse 
whatsoever for the pain he had caused so many families or for terrorizing the residents of the state of California for over a year. He once said, I love to kill people. I love to watch them die. I would shoot them in the head and they would wiggle and squirm all over the place and then just stop. Or I would cut them with a knife and watch their faces turn real white. I love all that blood. Peter Zazra, the man who found his parents Vincent and Maxine dead after being murdered by Richard, said in an interview, It's just evil. It's just pure evil. I don't know why somebody would want to do something like that. To take joy in the way it happened. So it's not clear if Richard had a compulsion to rape and kill or if he genuinely found joy in causing another human being to suffer. It's also impossible to know if Richard was a born sadistic killer or if he was created by his early exposure to sexual violence and the men in his life who taught him how to stalk and kill his prey. And in Richard's own words, even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough. But then again, maybe they don't. I think that's a, probably the most important f- quote he said. I think he was a psychopath, man. I think he had mental mental damage that that including the absolutely horrific things he witnessed as a young kid and young teenager all led for him to go down this road. I don't think he would have gone down this road. Otherwise, I mean, everybody that knew him, his family, people that he grew up with that went to school with him have all said he was like a normal kid. He was this normal guy, really friendly, funny, like people liked him. And I think it's just like a series of events that unfold and, Sometimes there's just this perfect storm or perfect recipe of things and events that happen to somebody that lead them down a certain path. And, and obviously I think there's mental illness here. There's health issues. There's lots of different things that are all playing into this, but I think all this sort of corrupts your mind. And obviously, you know, he got to a point where he felt like he, you know, found comfort and, protection from the devil and thought hey why not do the devil's work and and that's exactly what he did and you know it all kind of culminated and built this obsession around killing people and you know finding thrill from it and the power i think it was the power too i think he really felt powerful because he was not he wasn't caught for a very long time and he could just do what he wanted with these people whatever he wanted to do including end their life. And I'm still on the fence about the whole Satanism thing because, uh, you know, after what I, I know about Anton LaVey and his work and everything, and obviously there's some things in there that are questionable, but I think a lot of the Satanism for Richard Ramirez was more of like a, a cover in a way. I think it was a way for him to not only make himself scarier, but you know, it really provided like a reason for him to do what he was doing. You know, and, and I, I think it was also just, it, it made people fear him because the whole pentagram thing is interesting. And, you know, if you look at the church of Satan and you look at their, their actual, you know, symbol or logo or whatever you want to call it, Satanists use an inverted pentagram most of the time. And from what I've seen of the pentagrams that Richard Ramirez made, they were just normal pentagrams. And we've talked about this before that a pentagram is not inherently a say uh, satanic symbol 
It is actually, at one point, it was a Christian symbol. You look at the Star of David, the Jewish symbol, star, five-pointed star. And it's actually the, you know, symbol of the Wiccan religion. So, you know, I, I feel like he really didn't know that much about Satanism. I don't think he really he really dove into it or really believed it or that it was like the sole motivation for killing or that it was, you know, him doing ritualistic killings in, you know, in Satan's name. And there wasn't any sort of real ritualistic things that he did as far as we know with his victims other than, you know, doing, you know, putting the symbols around in blood and, you know, putting a pentagram around in blood. Other than that, there really wasn't anything that indicates that these were satanic killings or ritual killings of any sort. It was just very much cowardly killings. I mean, just shooting people point blank and killing people while they sleep. It's just, it shows this weakness that he had too, in a way like he, he felt like that was, you know, the safest way for him to do this and get away with it. And I think a lot of this stems back to Mike, you know, Mike showed him how to do this at a very young age and, basically taught him how to kill. I mean, he basically had like a mentor on how to be a serial killer. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, it was just all these things that led to him doing the things that he did. What's also interesting too, that we didn't mention earlier is that, you know, we did an episode on the Cecil hotel and uh, Ramirez in 1985 actually stayed at the Cecil hotel during his killing spree actually. And uh, yeah, he would stay at this hotel and that's pretty frightening to think about because I truly believe the Cecil hotel is haunted. There's definitely paranormal activity there. And the fact that this monster stayed there is definitely chilling to think about. Well, with all that being said, definitely want to know what you think about Richard Ramirez. What do you think his motivations were for becoming a serial killer? Do you think that this was Something that, you know, like I said, was a culmination of sort of a perfect recipe of things to come together in order for him to become a serial killer. Do you think he was born evil? What do you think? I would love to know your thoughts. Hopefully you enjoyed this very disturbing episode of the Lights Out podcast. I know it was very dark. And, you know, before I wrap things up, I just always want to pay my respects to the victims because all of these people were real human beings that were all innocent and brutally murdered and i can only imagine the pain and anguish and grief that these victims families have been through over the years and just i can't even imagine i can't even imagine having something like this happen to somebody i love it's got to be the most devastating thing ever and honestly it, it sickens me that he was allowed to live for 23 years on death row i think that there is no reason for him to even you know, continue living at that point. I mean, what's the point of giving somebody the death sentence if you're going to wait fucking 40 years to execute them? There's just no point in my opinion. But then again, it's just my opinion. So again, always remember the victims because they are the ones that truly matter. But thanks again for listening to this episode of Lights Out Podcasts. Until next time, lights out, everybody. Everybody.